I don't know how this will work with the video, but uh, I am, I'm quite eager to hear if you have any questions or comments or descriptions about anything in your meditation practice this evening about the instructions offered, just anything you're noticing, anything about your practice in general. If there are any comments or questions, descriptions, I'd be very interested to respond. And please, Jim. Thank you, Howie. I'm, I'm polling teachers. Why is it so much easier for me to drop down into a quiet place when I'm with a group versus at home? Just the energy? <laughs> Why is it easier to drop down in a group? I would say you, I think you answered the question. I think that we offer each other a, a a silent and you know an invisible support and an uplifting power that view actually goes back even in ancient hinduism where they had the concept of satsang where you know the word sat is truth and sangha when you have a meeting of people who meet for the purpose of awakening to the way things are not some kind of objective truth, but what, what everyone's experience is, that there is, a, that there is a sacred power in that. And it, it is in and of itself a condition for liberation. It frees our mind of its usual um, uh, dysregulation or you know, confusion. possible to come to a group every day. <laughs> uh, any suggestions? Well, come as much as you can, but what many people do is they, they adopted Insight Timer, you know, as an app that tells you how many people are practicing all over the place. A thousand people sitting at the same moment. That's one option. Another is to, is to uh, watch a, like this talk is being watched by people or this Q&A is being watched by a few people, two or three, <laughs> I don't know how many. But last week we had, we had 40 or so people watching the Dharma talk from afar, so that's kind of a virtual sangha. Spirit Rock, I know, does their Monday nights, I think, are, are all streamed. Yeah, again, I'm just, I'm just wondering about suggestions for settling down when I'm alone at home. Oh, suggestions for settling down. Well, one of the things about I've found about hearing instructions, as I've heard a lot of instructions over the years, I've had lots of teachers, and over the years I've internalized some of those instructions, and I basically direct, I, I will do some kind of gathering, some kind of attempt to sustain my attention, and I found it most helpful, especially in the course of daily life, because we do tend to be uh, somewhat disembodied. And we tend to be living in, de depending a lot on our rational mind, often to our detriment. We are actually not very good with it. And 
in that process lose contact with our other physical senses and our basic intuition. And so whatever you can do to, to make sure that you include every part of your body. That's why I kept saying, put your body, put your body in your mind and your mind in your body. It's really, it's in some ways the secret teaching that embodied awareness just gives us so much more it creates so much more the condition for intuitive awareness to really see what's going on. I'm not sure if there more I could say. Yeah, I suspect it's just habit. I got to, I got to sit there until I. Yeah, yeah but you know, I, I was about to talk tonight about. You know, when you say maybe I just have to sit there until. Until maybe I interrupted you. What what did you what were you going to say? Well, um, it's got to become a habit. In the sense of like, okay, I'm sitting for thirty seconds or a minute. Nothing's happening. I'm gonna get up and run around the house. You know, I mean, I I need to kind of get me used to that. Yeah. So get you. I like the idea of using the internal language of getting used to, as opposed to trying too hard. I mean, it's happening. I'm just kind yeah. of spoiled with sanghas. Yeah, sanghas are spoiling. <laughs> but I've found that it's really problematic if you don't have sangha. Sure. That it's very easy to just drift into, into our own imagination and then use as our way of settling down the television or the, the computer. And why, if we could just do that intermediate step of putting our mind in our body. It's so amazing. It's like almost instantaneous. Here we are. I feel pretty settled tonight. How about you? Please, Kevin. Sort of along those lines, I'm pretty consistent in in my practice, and there's a lot of times where it's just, you know, like there's nothing happening. You know, so it's almost like there's nothing happening. I think the metaphor that I think of myself, it's like kind of the seed sitting in the mud in the wintertime. You know, it's kind of a necessary thing. It's got to happen, and it's all part of the process to get to make a tulip. But, you know, it's just happening and sitting there, okay, doing it when it's, you know, and the commitment to doing it. And there's a certain satisfaction, I guess, that I from doing it. It's like, okay, it's like, okay, I'm letting myself know that I'm serious, that I'm committed to this, you know, and I'm doing this, even though it's there's not always a it's it's a process that, you know, like anything, like watching your kids grow, you know, just all of a sudden, you know, shit happens and you know they're they're bigger, you know, because they because they ate every day and and that sort of thing. So I think it's it's kind of like that. There's a whole thing, and also re, it's more and more realizing that these things, there'll, there'll be these feelings happen, these feeling states or whatever, and it's like, okay, I'm not, I didn't do that. I'm not, I'm not doing it. It's just happening. I'm like, again, I'm, I'm like kind of like the plant that grows. It's just, you know, it's not like me doing it. It's, it's just sort of happening there. But you, yeah. showing up and doing this every day somehow creates that process. It's like exposing it to the light and the water in a sense or something. But Yeah, so. it's like Buddha plants. Just sit and... Take in the sun, take in the earth, take in the moisture of love, and plant grows. Beautiful. Wouldn't, don't have anything to add to that. 
Anybody on this end? All liberated. <laughs> well, I had a thought tonight that, uh, and part of this started by by the, and I, again, I have to, I, I inevitably, I carry with me different mind moments. I carry with me the uh, reverberations of reading and learning about what's going on in the world. And in this last week, we had two students from uh, Marjorie Stoneman is at high school in Florida who committed suicide. And then one of the fathers of the Sandy Hook, one of the children that died in the Sandy Hook massacre, uh, also took his life. And of course, when I hear anything, just having, having swam, swum in the Dharma waters for a long time, what just came to my, besides the, the heartache for, for the, um, whatever the state of mind that arose for those three, and then all the ripples of their loss to their near and dear ones. But whatever that state of mind, uh, it's really a, it's a, a shame because just like the sense of sitting down and keeping quiet, something in us relaxes. But many people just are not available to nor not available to the simple experience of the present moment. And when something intense arises in present time, they don't know how to accommodate it, don't know how to metabolize it. And all of us have some version of that in our life. We get overwhelmed or flooded. We get um, freaked out. And the tendency of the the worldling, I think I shared the Papancha translation last week, the tendency of the worldling's imagination is in, to erupt in an effusion of, of mental um, commentary, in discursive thinking, and, uh, and in the center of that discursive thought is, get me out of here in some way that this moment that I'm experiencing is completely, utterly uh, unworkable. We do this in mild ways every day, in big ways. And the last thing that we do because we're untrained, it's just to remember that all of the mechanisms that we have to, that, that, causes us, that cause us to escape, it comes out of a deep desire for relief. It comes out of love. Even the most distorted, most, uh, most unreliable, most um, unhelpful methodology is still driven by the desire for relief. There's a, um, a passage from one of my favorite teachers, who I quote a lot, Sri Nisargadatta, where he says, um, 
He says something to the effect of, um, self, it's, it starts with self-hatred and self-distrust are grievous errors. It says your flight from pain and your search for pleasure is a sign of love you bear for yourself. All I plead with you is this, make love of yourself perfect. Give yourself something to the effect of give yourself infinity, give yourself immediacy, that's how I take it. But we don't know how to do that. And at the heart of the Buddha's teaching, he said, if you're here embodied, you will meet so many things that trigger you, that are hard to bear. It's just definition of birth, leading cause of being triggered. Leading cause of so many stresses. But then the, he went on to say, we have to learn some way to open to how painful it is at times. Not all the time. It's not all pain. Never said it's all pain. All life is pain. He said life has within it things that are really hard to bear. And this must be welcomed. And of course, implicit in that is we have to have the tools to be able to welcome it. Most of us don't. You know, from, from the time we were born, we were, the, our welcoming was, uh-oh, get me out of here. Let's go shopping. Let's hit the, t hit the refrigerator, hit the bottle, hit the TV, whatever it is. So right in the first teaching that he, that he, when he turned the wheel of Dharma, he says, open to it. Learn how to open to it. And you want to be able to say in your life, I let myself feel it. Because otherwise, even meditation practice, if meditation practice can become this subtle trying to get away, trying to get out, even trying to quiet can be another kind of trap. Even trying to settle can be another trap. In fact, one teacher described it as something like trying to push a car. You push it. You keep pushing. You push it from town to town and you get there and you go, I made it. And then you push it to the next town. And then you realize, this is no way to live. But then you hear the wisdom teachings that say, wake up to where you always already are. Open up the hood. See that there's a, a bad spark plug. <laughs> Replace the spark plug. Turn the ignition. Learning that there is wisdom right where you're sitting. But all of our methods are not to keep pushing the car, not to get somewhere, that just becomes more of that flight from pain and search for pleasure. But to make love of ourselves perfect, we come back to this vital spot and we wake up. What do we wake up to when we start to reorient ourselves to real time? We feel, we feel with an increasing sense of mental strength being able to, to stay current, to have our mind not waver so much. We are able to actually feel 
hurt in our body, feel hurt in our heart, feel the, the spinning of our mind. And then we see for ourselves, it's no longer theoretical. The second noble truth is not theoretical anymore. We see, oh, what gives rise to what compounds our mental suffering what turns the basic stress of our life into compounded mental suffering is this chronic tendency of my mind, of our mind, of human beings' mind, to very innocently, but very ignorantly, this constant desire for things to be different than the way they are. And that desire for things to be different than the way they are expresses itself. Is that chronic sense of desire for pleasure? It expresses itself as the desire for becoming, to try to get somewhere, become someone. The, the whole process of creating the, our identity, the, the the self-improvement plan, the self-becoming. It unfortunately has never made anyone good enough because the golden dreams keep moving. And the one who we imagine that is already not enough, that will become enough, is imaginary as well. And we end up uh, doing a lot of toppling forward, actually going nowhere, but losing sight of the, of the intuitive awareness that sits as the very consciousness through which we're perceiving, the very freedom that we're looking for. So it expresses itself as the desire for pleasure, the desire for becoming, which is just a fraught with the... With the trying to become good, to become better, to become best, this whole measuring mind. Many of you know that I, I, I love this poem from, I think it's Rumi, where he says, live in the nowhere where you came from, even though you have an address here. You know, I'm somebody that's going somewhere. You have eyes that see from that nowhere. That's what waking up is. And you have eyes that judge distances, how high, how low. You own two shops, and you keep running back and forth. He says, try to close the one that's a fearful trap, always getting smaller. Checkmate this, checkmate that. Keep open the one where you're not selling fish hooks anymore. You're the free swimming fish. So he's basically saying, See, notice the way your mind gets caught in that in that good, better, best, that measuring that keeps you on this kind of treadmill of what the Buddha called bhava, or becoming. So it's desire for pleasure, desire for becoming, and then the flip side of it, it expresses itself as the desire for non-becoming, which is the, it expresses itself in the aversive tendency is, I don't want this anymore. I I want to get out of here. I don't like it. And it starts with mild aversion and its extreme expression is the suicidal impulse. Because I can't, I want out. 
Again, if you listen to it with the backdrop, your flight from pain and search for pleasure is a sign of love you bear for yourself. So you can hear the cry in the person who is feeling that suicidal ideation. I'm sure there are people, I've had that, I've had suicidal ideation. I'm sure there are many people in this room that have. It's a very innocent movement of mind away from the vital present, all because we, we didn't have the tools to be able to accommodate the pain that presents itself. This is why we practice. This is an inspiration to practice. To be able to make that shift from being caught up in that desire for non-becoming to be able to relate to it. Oh, this is, the, this is my, my mind is wanting me to get out of here. My mind is fabricating uh, uh, the death as the source of relief. And we can actually see what our mind is doing. The mind that's awake, that's not pushing the car, that's actually opening the hood and looking at what's going on, says, my spark plugs have gotten stuck on this, this, negative, this negative charge. And, uh, and you're, in, you're in so much pain. What's a wise and what's a loving way to attend to that? And so it, for, when I see these things, I say, this person didn't know how to, how to recognize the desire for non-becoming. They didn't recognize the third truth that followed on that, on that second truth, that there is a cessation, there's an ending to that desire for non-becoming. There's an ending to that cause of suffering. That there's freedom available to you even, even if you have lost a really near and dear one. Even if this world is completely mad. You know, I, I noticed that I got very triggered by the, some of the news this last week. Uh, the Mueller report and the aftermath and the way that it's the frenzy that's followed and the, the, the hit list and, you know, all, all this stuff. I got triggered and then I, it was funny, I was sitting tonight and right through my mind, through my mind came this, this um, understanding that, again, from the teachings about equanimity. You know, one of the, the traditional phrasing around the cultivation of balance of heart and mind, a kind of open, open uh, uh, mountain-like quality, being able to accommodate things, is although I wish things were otherwise, things are the way they are. That's, the, that's one of the... Um, another way of saying it is, I care about you, world, but I can't keep you from suffering. And we do, it's really useful when it comes to dealing with another person. But then um, I was sitting there thinking about equanimity and into my mind came this uh, experience I had when I was, I think I was 21 years old. I went to, um, I went to Israel. And when I, was in, when I was in Israel, at that time with the, shifting sands, kind of no pun intended, the shifting sands of the, whoever was in charge in the Middle East 
the Sinai Peninsula, which is part of Egypt, at this time it was part of Israel. Israel was occupying the Sinai Peninsula, so it was open to tourists. And I went with some people on a jeep into the middle of the Sinai Desert, and this guy in the jeep took us to this little Bedouin village, these nomads, and they offered tea for us. And we started talking to these people, and it's funny, this whole story came back, and the Bedouin was just so matter-of-fact saying, you know, we don't worry about who's in control. So one, one year it's the Egyptians, the next year it's the Israelis, the next year it's somebody else. We, we, um, we somehow see that it's, it's shifting sands, it's changing conditions, and, and we, we work with it. We work with it. So how did I get on the topic of equanimity? Oh, so that there is a, there is a way of sitting in the middle of these changing conditions. There is a, a way to accommodate the pain of our mind, the pain of our body. There's a way to, to, to practice where we're not pushing the river, pushing the car, where we're, we're relaxing. We're not driven by becoming better, by discipline, by this kind of pressure that just is more becoming, it's more craving. Instead, we, we release our tight fist, as the Tibetans say, of grasping, and we realize there is right now open space. And we get used to it. We put our mind in our body, we get used to it. And then when we see the pain run through our hearts, we see, oh, that pain is a changing condition. That pain does not define me. When we see the self-hatred, it doesn't define me. It's a habit of mind. When you see the tendency to think, I'll be happier if I have that, we see that's the wanting mind. That's an imposter. That's Mara. Wanting to keep us in a state of, of perpetual wandering, perpetual dissatisfaction. So I guess the, the main message that that I'm relying on is not to try so hard. To, as one of my friends says, um, he said something to do with, pretend that you're, um, what was it? Pretend that you, that you take life easy. <laughs> pretend that, Pretend that you really are lighthearted about things. Try it. Try just even the idea of it. Come on. Be. Be easygoing. What happens to you? When I say be easygoing, you may want to smack me. <laughs> but if nothing more, it actually shows you that it shows you the conditioning to think that you have to keep struggling. Practice can be quite easy. It's, I brought along, Andy, I'll be right with you, but this is from I, an unnamed teacher, but from the Tibetan tradition. Above all, be at ease. Be as natural and spacious as possible. Slip quietly out of the noose 
of your habitual anxious self. Release all grasping and relax into your true nature. Think of your ordinary emotional, thought-ridden self as a block of ice or a slab of butter left out in the sun. If you're feeling hard and cold, let this aggression melt away in the sunlight of your meditation. Let peace work on you and enable you to gather your scattered mind into the mindfulness of calm abiding and awaken in you the awareness and insight of clear seeing. And soon you will find all of your negativity disarmed, your aggression dissolved, and your confusion evaporating slowly like mist into the vast and stainless sky of your absolute nature. Or as the poet Hafez says, I think his, his, this poet, this, um, the poem's entitled, Just Sit There. It says, just sit there. Don't do a thing. Try it. He says, uh, don't do a thing. For your separation from the divine is the hardest work in this world. I love that line. For your separation from, I, I, it makes me reminds me of Leonard Cohen, who said, uh, "If you don't become the ocean, you will be seasick every day." <laughs> Love that. A lot of what what keeps us from from relaxing, from getting used to it, from settling in, is, the, is just a habitual mind of, of reviving what happened before and anticipating what happens next and just basically living our life. Life in the imagined past and future which don't actually exist. And our, we miss the nourishment of being right where we are. And if I can't find it for myself, I go to Sangha where people remind me that, oh, you have that. You have that capacity. It's not just the Buddha doesn't, or Jesus is not, is not something you become. It's what you are when you're awake. That's why we go to the, last week I think we did a little refuges. I go to the Buddha for refuge. Really trust in awareness. I go to the Dharma for refuge. What does the Buddha know the Dharma? What's, how, th- how are things right here? I go to the Sangha for refuge. It wasn't a throwaway. It's equal to the Buddha and the Dharma. It's everything. In fact, what was it the, that uh, Thich Nhat Hanh said that the next, the next Buddha, you know, the, there's always supposed to be the next Buddha, the next Buddha is the Sangha. I like that idea. There's something I wanted to read. Oh, so the, from the bhikkhun, from the Majjhima Nikaya, which is the middle length teachings of the Buddha, and I think I'll end with this since we're, I'm, I don't know if you're weary, but I'm a little weary 
from uh, accommodating the joys and the sorrows. But here's what the Buddha described in the sutta called the one fortunate attachment. Let not a person revive the past or on the future build her hopes. For the past has been left behind. The future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let her see each presently arisen state. Let her know that and be sure of it invincibly, unshakably. Today, we must, the effort must be made. Tomorrow, death may come. Who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep her or her hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentless by day, by night, it is she, the peaceful sage has said, who has one fortunate attachment. So, let's get used to it. Andy, did you want to say something? <laughs> To have the ice melt. Yes, after reading the paper, he was so enraged. Yes. You got to go put your aggression out in the sun like a block of ice. Yes. May we all learn how to melt into the openness of our meditation. May we all learn how to accommodate frustrated desire, wounded pride. If you, have, if you are born, you will have an identity. If you have an identity, you will have wounded pride. It, it, is, it comes with the territory. So may we all learn to relate to it instead of from it. Be the Buddha who knows the Dharma. And just lastly, if there has been any value to us being together, uh, any benefits, any fruits, any goodness, any blessings, um, let them be shared with all beings everywhere, including ourselves. And let that sharing of our blessings um, be sent with a, with a message, the wish that all beings in all circumstances, all beings of all uh, races, all genders, all sexual orientations, all ability, all um, financial conditions, may all beings, including our politicians, experience the blessings of our practice. And may they be happy and may they have the cause of happiness increasing. May they be free of suffering and the causes of suffering decreasing. May they recognize the sacred happiness that is our natural state of being lucidly aware and never stray away from it. And may, um, may 
all of our hearts grow in serenity and equanimity. May we all be liberated. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.